Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the mercy that you've given us through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this morning that by your Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes, that we might see more and more of the glory and the grace, the beauty and the mercy that's found in our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes now that we may behold wonderful things in your beautiful word. And we pray that what we know not, that you would teach us, and that what we have not, we pray that you'd please give us, and that what we are not, O oh God, we pray that you'd please make us, all for the glory and praise of our dear Lord and Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. This morning we are continuing in our study of the letter of James, and as we've seen in these last few weeks, that this short letter was written by James, the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and he was writing this letter to a group of Christians that he used to pastor when they were in Jerusalem. But these Christians have been scattered throughout the Roman Empire because of the religious persecution that began after the martyrdom of Stephen. And he's writing to these Jewish Christians who are going through trials of various kinds. And James wants his readers to grow, to become mature followers of Jesus Christ. So James gives in this short letter a series of tests, a series of tests that will help his readers to grow, to become mature, perfect, complete followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we've seen in the first two chapters of James is this. James says that the first test of our faith is the test of trials, how we respond to trials. And then James talks about how, the te- how we face the, tr- the, tr- the test of temptations. How do we face temptations? How do we respond to temptations? The third test of our faith is how we react and respond to the truth, the truth of God's Word. And then at the end of chapter 1, James gives the true religion test. Uh, What test can we apply to understand if we're really practicing true religion? And last week, what we saw in beginning of chapter 2, he gives us another test, the test of partiality. He asked us last week, are we looking at others through the eyes of the world or through the eyes of grace? Are we really loving our neighbor by obeying the royal law of the king to love our neighbor as ourselves? Or are we showing partiality? And James reminded us last week that those who show no mercy, no mercy will be shown to them on the great day of judgment. And so that's the context, that's the eschatological context we arrive at this morning. And we really come in James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, we arrive at the very heart of this letter. So no passage in James has been more hotly debated over the centuries than this section in James, where James gives us yet another test to help us mature as followers of Jesus Christ. And that is the faith test, the faith test. And that's found in in, in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. The faith test, according to James, 
has only one question. And the question is this, what is saving faith? What is saving faith? And here is James's answer to that question. And it's an answer that's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So let's listen to what Holy Scripture says. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, Will you have faith and not have works? Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This passage over the centuries has challenged interpreters, especially Reformed Protestants, who rightly confess to our Roman Catholic friends that justification is by faith alone apart from works. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3.28, We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And yet, at least at first glance, James seems to assert the opposite of that. He says in verse 24 that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So many have wondered, does, J does James and Paul, do they contradict one another? Is James saying this is one way to be justified and Paul is saying here's another way to be justified? Interestingly, Martin Luther, the most famous Protestant reformer, he had difficulty reconciling James with Paul. At one point, he called the letter of James an epistle of straw. And he said this, quote, Many have mightily labored to reconcile James and Paul, but not with real success. They are at odds. Faith justifies and faith does not justify. There is, if there is anyone who can bring these two into harmony, I will set my professor hat on him and let him scold me as a fool. End quote. Well, I'm not going to scold Martin Luther as a fool, but I do hope to show each one of you this morning that James and Paul don't need to be reconciled because they're not enemies. They're friends. James and Paul complement 
each other beautifully. And what I want you to see, in spite of some questions that you may have, is, is if you look at your Bible, so don't look at me, look at your Bible, three times in this passage, James tells us the point. He tells us three different times the point of the passage. He begins right there in verse 14 by asking a set of questions that set up the main idea. He asks about a, what kind of faith can save, right? And then three different times he answers that question. Look at verse 17. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith also apart from works is dead. So James tells us over and over again that if faith without works is dead and useless and no help for you on the judgment day of God. And so the question that James is wanting to answer is, what is saving faith? And so James is going to tell us what it's not, and then he's going to tell us what it is. So if you're taking notes, this is our outline for this morning. Number one, saving faith is not dead faith. Saving faith is not dead faith. That's verses 14 to 17. Saving faith is not dead faith. Number two, saving faith is not demon faith. That's verses 18 to 20. Saving faith is not demon faith. Verses 18 to 20. And number three, saving faith is living faith. Saving faith is living faith. That's verses 21 to 26. Saving faith, true faith, justifying faith is a living faith that necessarily produces good works. It is the only faith that will save you on the last day. That's what James wants us to know. Now, I know that many of us in this room have taken some important tests in your life. Um, some of us in our congregation have taken the SAT and the ACT and the LSAT. Some of you younger ones have taken end of semester exams. Uh, some of you have actually just finished taking entrance exams into graduate school or PhD work. Um, and some of you who are a little bit younger, one day you're going to take a driver's license test, and that's going to feel like the biggest, most important test you've ever taken. But let me just say this. All of these tests are relatively a big deal, but the test that James gives us in James chapter 2, the faith test, and listen to me, this is the most important test you will ever take in your life. The answer to this test has eternal significance. So, James wants us to understand the difference between a living faith and a dead faith. Faith without works is dead and useless. James had previously mentioned, you'll remember, he's very concerned that some of his hearers who would be reading his words were hearers of the word only and not doers, deceiving themselves. 
So James is trying to help each one of us to discern whether we are those who hear the word and put it into practice, or we're the ones who hear the word and don't do anything because we're deceived. So brothers and sisters, James wants each one of us this morning to examine our faith and to see if it passes the test. And my prayer is that everyone who hears my voice will truly believe and pass the test. Number one, saving faith is not dead faith. Verses 14 to 17. The main point of this passage is simple. Genuine saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is a living faith that works. Living faith proves itself by producing good works. That's what James is getting at. Now, James is a wonderful teacher, and so he begins by setting up a contrast. Look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Notice what James says. James begins by by talking about a person who says they have faith. Do you notice that? James does not say that this person has faith. Notice it says, if someone says, if someone claims to have faith. They're making a claim with their mouth. They're saying, I have faith. I have faith. But James says they don't have works. They say they have faith, but they have no works. Then James asks a question, can that faith save him? That little word, that, is very, very, very important. Look at it again. Can that faith save him? The word that is a definite article in the original, and it's translated beautifully by the ESV. It's really sad. In the Roman Catholic English translation of this verse, they leave the word that out, which completely changes the meaning of the passage. Because James is not asking, can faith save But James is asking, can that faith, namely the faith that someone says they have faith, but they don't have any works? And the answer that James is is assuming is, no, that faith, a faith that is workless, cannot save, is not able to save. And he gives this powerful illustration in verses 15 and 16. He he talks about, in verses 15 and 16, uh, a Christian, a brother or sister in Christ, comes up to you and they're poorly clothed and they don't have any food to eat and you just say something to them. You say, well, you know, go in peace, be warm and filled, but you don't actually do anything to help your brother or sister. James asks the question, well, what good is that? What good is that? That, that, that's, that? That's not helpful. That's worthless. That's useless. And look what he says, verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That kind of faith, James says, is no good. It's not a living faith. It's a dead faith. So I want you to think of it this way. Faith is kind of like, according to James, it's like a seed. You take a seed. If it's a living seed, if it's a, li- it's, if it's a living seed, when you plant it, unless it's planted by Nick Roark and Allison Roark, What will happen is that you put a living seed in the ground or into a pot with dirt in it, whatever, it produces a living plant. Living seed produces a living plant. 
If it's a dead seed and you put it in the ground, nothing's going to happen because it's dead. It won't produce anything. And that's what James is saying. Faith is a living faith. It produces fruit. It produces something. Dead faith doesn't produce anything. It's useless. It's useless. And I believe that James, he gets all of his theology from his older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he, he probably heard his brother say these words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Listen, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so, brothers and sisters, this morning, James begins by helping us understand that there is an eternal difference There is a massive difference between living faith, saving faith, real faith, and dead faith, because saving faith is not dead faith. That's number one. Number two, saving faith is not demon faith. If you're confused by that, just wait a minute. I'll explain it. Saving faith is not demon faith. Beginning in verse 18, notice that James, he introduces an imaginary objector. Um, sometimes this is referred to as a diatribe. You, you have a, an, a form of argument that you introduce uh, an imaginary objector to, to kind of meet objections as they are raised, uh, to clarify what you're saying. Look at verse 18. So look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So the imaginary objector, it's almost like he's treating faith and works as two separate gifts. Um, For instance, Paul talks about the gift of faith. Um, Someone can have the gift of faith. Well, um, the the imaginary objector is basically saying this, hey, James, why are you trying to make everybody the same? You know, some people have faith and some people have works. that's, That's all he's saying. And then James answers that question and says, show me. He says, show me, show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. I think if Pastor James lived in America, uh, James would want to live in Missouri because that's the show me state. Show me state. Yes, none of you are laughing. Okay, great. Um, James says, show me throughout this passage. James is saying, show me. You say you're a believer, show me. You say you have faith, show me. You say you're walking with Christ, show me. James is saying, show me, show me, show me. Show me your faith. Faith is invisible. So how are you going to see faith? It's going to have to be lived out. It has to be lived out. And so he says, show me. Prove it. Demonstrate your faith. Vindicate your claim to be a believer. He says, I'll show you my faith by my works. So think of it this way. Faith is like the wind. You can't see the wind. You can only see the effects of the wind. And the issue here is how is saving faith shown? How can you see faith? 
And verse 18, the imaginary chapter is trying to separate faith over here and works over here, and James will not have it. Now, I want you to think about, if I were to ask you, if you know the Bible fairly well, and I were to ask you, what is the longest treatment in Scripture about faith? And, and I imagine many of you would say, oh, I know there's a long chapter in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, and it, it tells us what faith is, and it illustrates from the Old Testament over and over and over again those who had faith. In fact, some people refer to Hebrews chapter 11, they call it the hall of faith because you've got, you've got Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Rahab and Samson and David and Samuel and a whole lot more. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. I want you to notice this. Some of you, you may have never noticed this. We call it the hall of faith. But what you find in Hebrews 11 is not those Old Testament heroes professing their faith. Instead, you've got the writer of Hebrews over and over again showing how their faith was lived out in good works and obedience. He, it's a chapter not about faith as a profession merely, but faith as it was evidenced in the life as they followed the Lord and believed His promises and obeyed Him. And that's exactly what James is saying. Hebrews 11 is a picture of living faith lived out through love and obedience. So look at, look at verse 19. James gives another illustration. Verse 19, he says, You believe that God is one. You believe that God is one. He says, that's swell. You, you do well. That's awesome. Then he says, even the demons believe. And they shudder. What is he talking about? Now, if you don't know, if you, if you hear that word, God, that phrase, God is one, James, of course, as he's writing to Jewish Christians, they're going to hear that. They're going to know exactly what he's talking about. And maybe it's not all, we're not, we don't have the Old Testament on our minds and hearts as much as James's readers do. But if, if you hear that phrase, God is one, it should make you think of an Old Testament passage. The Shema, the, the, the daily prayer of every Jewish person is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so, so James is, is echoing this, this daily prayer, right? That the Lord is one. The Lord is one. The Lord our God is one. And James is saying, guess what? If you, if you just say that out loud, God is one, the Lord is one, if you profess that with your mouth, well, guess what? Demons can actually believe that God is one, but they don't actually love Him. They don't, they don't trust in Him savingly. The very next verse, what's the very next verse after the Shema? It says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Well, demons don't love God. They hate God. And James is saying, if you, if you profess that God is one, he says, you got great theology. That's great theology. But guess what? Demons have the same theology. And they shudder when they think about God. Uh, one thing I'd love for you to do sometime, if you want to study this more in depth, read through the Gospels and notice 
what the demons say to the Lord Jesus Christ when they meet him. Demons have much better theology than, than I would say many people who claim to be followers of Jesus. Now you think, well, that's a kind of provocative statement. Listen to what one demon says to Jesus. Uh, Legion uh, says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? The very next thing he says is, Have you come here to torment us before the time? See, demons know who Jesus is. They recognize who Jesus is, but they shudder before him. Demons believe they don't have saving faith. And to, to, to bring it up to the present, you could stand up every day of your life and, and profess and say out loud the Apostles' Creed. But that's not going to get you to heaven. Saying a creed that God is one, I believe in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's not going to get you into heaven. Affirming the right doctrines with your mouth, but failing to grasp Jesus by, by faith, by a living and active faith in your heart, will send you straight to hell. Look at verse 20. He says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? That's his concluding statement. Faith without works is a demon faith, and it is utterly worthless. So, saving faith is not a dead faith. Saving faith is not a demon faith. But thirdly and finally, saving faith is living faith. Saving faith is living faith. Verses 21 to 26. James has shown us that faith without works is dead, and it's a demon faith, and it's a dead faith. And so in verses 21 to 26, what James is going to do is provide two more illustrations. Two more illustrations from the Old Testament that help embody what he's trying to argue for. And what he's going to show us is that saving faith, real faith, shows itself not merely with words, but with actions. Saving faith is living and active faith. It's demonstrated and vindicated and proved by our actions, by our works. He gives two illustrations, one from Abraham and one from Rahab. So look at verse 21. Let's begin with Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, when we hear the words justified by works, if you've studied the Bible enough, that may like jar in your ears because it seems to contradict what the Apostle Paul teaches, even in Romans chapter 4, verse 2. He says this about Abraham. If Abraham was justified by works, well, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So once again, our Roman Catholic friends will go to this verse and they'll say, you see, James and Paul are saying two different things. Justification by works is how you have to go. Well, well so here's the thing. Before we try to compare James and Paul, let's try to let James say what he wants to say. Let's try to listen and let James explain himself what he's trying to teach us. He's going to explain and clarify what justified by works means in the following verses. 
But I want you to consider one thing before we dive in. Notice this. When you hear the word justify or justification or justified, many of us import what Paul has taught on that doctrine into this passage. And Paul makes clear in his writings that sinful men, sinful women, sinful boys, sinful girls are justified. They are declared righteous in the sight of God, not by doing any works of the law, but only through faith in Christ alone. And this is all by God's grace alone. So at the moment you believe in Christ, that you trust yourself to Christ, that He died for you, that He rose again for you, the minute you trust in Christ, God justifies you. God declares you right in His sight. But this word justify, this word justification, it also can take on a slightly nuanced meaning. Other times, this word justified is used in Scripture to, sh- to mean this, to vindicate or to prove right. For instance, Jesus said this in Luke chapter 7, verse 35. Jesus said this, Wisdom is justified, is, that is, wisdom is vindicated, wisdom is proven right by all her children. And James is going to say something similar about wisdom in the next chapter. Listen to what James says in the next chapter. He says in James chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Whoever is wise and understanding among you, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And so wisdom is shown, is put on display, is proven right by works. You want to see someone who's wise? How do you know someone's wise? Well, they have to show themselves to be wise by their conduct. And I think that what James is getting at here is he's helping us see that Abraham's faith was vindicated. It was proven by his actions, by what he did. Now, is that what James is saying? Well, look at it closely. Let's look at, let's look at the passage again. In verse 21... So don't look at me. Look at your Bibles. This is the most important part of this passage. James alludes in verse 21, notice, to when Abraham offered up who? Who? Isaac. That's right. Isaac. He offered up his only son, Isaac, on the altar. Does anybody know when that happened in in the book of Genesis? Genesis what? Genesis 22. So if you look in your Bibles, look at your cross-references, he's referring to when Abraham offered up Isaac in Genesis 22. And he says that when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, Abraham's saving faith was vindicated. It was proven by his works. And then he explains in verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. So James is showing us that our father Abraham, he didn't have a dead faith. He didn't have a demon faith. He had a living faith, a a faith that was living and active. And look what he says in verse 23. This is important. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, and then he quotes 
Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So here's what James is saying. Abraham was declared righteous in God's sight in Genesis 15, 6, apart from any works when he believed God's promise, when he exercised his God-given faith. Abraham didn't work for his righteousness. He believed God's promise for his righteousness. He trusted in God, and God justified him. At that moment, in Genesis 15, 6, he was declared righteous in God's sight apart from any works. But James draws our attention to the fact that Abraham's saving faith in Genesis 15, 6 is only later vindicated or proven or put on display when he offered up his son Isaac many years later in Genesis 22. You remember, in his old age, Abraham was promised a child, and he believed that promise. And God gave him and Sarah, the son, Isaac, the child of promise. But then in Genesis 22, he's called to go on the mountain, on Mount Moriah, and to slay, to sacrifice his only son, his beloved son, the child of promise. And what does, what does the writer Moses tell us is happening there? In Genesis 22, we're told that Abraham was being tested by God. You see, Abraham was testing, God was testing Abraham's faith. And that's what James has been talking about in this letter, that, that, that God was testing Abraham's faith to prove the genuineness of Abraham's faith. He was vindicating the, the declaration that he was right with him. And so faith, real faith, saving faith, produces radical obedience to God's Word. And once again, James is saying, oh, Abraham believes God? Show me. When was Abraham's faith shown? In Genesis 22. So, to summarize it in a sentence, Abraham's visible obedience, Genesis 22, vindicated and proved his invisible faith, Genesis 15. And so that's what James says. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so when James says by faith alone, he's referring to this dead faith, this useless, workless faith that he's been talking about in this passage. So let's consider, let's consider now the, the, the second illustration that James gives in Rahab before we close. Look at verse 25. And the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. And so James begins with Abraham, Father Abraham, uh, the father of the Jews and the father of all believers. And then he goes to the other end of the spectrum and chooses a Gentile prostitute, a Gentile harlot. Saving faith, living faith, a faith that works is something that Abraham had, but it's also something that Rahab had. 
Now, some of you may not be familiar with Rahab. If you know the story in Joshua chapter 2, when Joshua and the spies went into the town of Jericho, Rahab, who was a Gentile, who was living in the city of Jericho, we're told in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she gave a friendly welcome to the spies. You remember the story. She had heard of the God of Israel, how he had brought them out of Egypt and rescued his people and brought them into the promised land. And she, she trusted in the God of Israel. But her profession, her belief, her faith in the God of Israel wasn't a mere profession. Her faith was on display. It was proven. It was vindicated by protecting the spies, by hiding the spies, by protecting them. And so faith produces this risk-taking action for God's kingdom. Rahab didn't just affirm the God of Israel. She acted on her belief. And brothers and sisters, what's amazing is that Abraham is not only in the family tree of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But if you read Matthew's genealogy carefully, you'll also find that one of the descendants, one of the, excuse me, one of the ancestors of King David, one of the ancestors of our Lord Jesus Christ is not only Abraham, but also Rahab the harlot, Rahab the prostitute. You see, whether you're a patriarch or a prostitute, whether you're a friend of God or whether you're someone who's referred to here as the prostitute. Saving faith, living faith is what counts in God's sight. Saving faith is living faith. Faith alone, brothers and sisters, faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. Let me say that one more time. Faith alone justifies. But the faith that justifies is never alone. It always produces good works. The faith that justifies is also the faith that sanctifies. The faith that saves unites us to Jesus Christ, the living one and the righteous one. And that faith is lived out and is vindicated, is proven by your works. When you say that you're a believer, what James wants to say to you is, Show me. Show me. And so that's how he concludes verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James says that without works, faith is like a corpse in a casket. You can put makeup on a corpse. You can paint a corpse. You can put nice clothes on a corpse. It might look alive from a distance. A corpse might even look like it's sleeping. But when you get closer and you begin to inspect, a corpse is dead. There's no life. It doesn't do anything. Dead faith has no works. But saving faith is living faith that produces good works. James and Paul are not 
arguing with each other. They're not facing each other, arguing about justification. Instead, brothers and sisters, as you read this passage and as you understand it, James and Paul are not facing each other and arguing. They're back to back. They're back to back facing attacks on the gospel on both sides. Paul is guarding the gospel from people who are trying to smuggle in their good works as a way to get right with God. Paul is fighting works righteousness. Paul says, no, you are saved by faith in Christ, not by your good works. James, on the other hand, is fighting easy believism. He's writing to clarify what genuine saving faith looks like. Saving faith, justifying faith, faith like Abraham had and like Rahab had is the living and active faith that works itself out in love. So test yourself this morning as we close. Is your faith dead or is it alive? Have you made a profession of faith and there's yet to be any transformation of your life? Are you merely a hearer of the word only? And if you are, then James says to you that you are deceiving yourself. Your faith is worthless and you have a demon faith and you are going to hell. James wants us to ask the question, Am I saved? James also gives us good news, doesn't he? It doesn't matter where you've come from or what your ethnicity is. He, doesn't, he, sa- he says to us it doesn't matter if you're male or female or old or young or Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter what sins that you've committed in your life or what mess that you're currently going through. James reminds us this morning that God's grace can reach us wherever we are and that we can be transformed by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. God justifies the ungodly, and that is good news this morning. God mercifully saves sinners through Jesus Christ. By God's own gracious will, He brought us forth. He gave us the new birth by the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He implanted his word in our hearts, which is able to save our souls. And we receive this saving word through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who died on the cross for our sins and who rose for our justification. And the moment we turn from our sins and trust in Christ, just like our father Abraham, we're counted righteous in him. All of our sins have been forgiven by His grace. And as new creatures, we begin to live for His glory by loving Him above all and by loving our neighbor as ourselves. Saving faith is a living and active and beautiful thing. Is this your story? Is this your story? If it is, if it is, then praise God who gave you the gift of faith and put your faith to work by loving the Lord and by loving your neighbor. Since I began with a, a, a kind of interesting quote from Luther, I want to I come back around and, and 
give you a quotation from Luther as we close from his commentary on Romans, because I think in this quote, he actually summarizes perfectly what James is talking about in this passage. Martin Luther writes this, saving faith is a living, busy, active, mighty thing. It does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question even rises, it's already done them, and it's always doing them. Whoever does not do such works is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works and knows neither what faith is and what good works are. Yet he talks and talks and talks with many words about faith and good works, but he never does them. Now, I don't want you to miss the sweetest part of this passage from me this morning. Look at verse 23 one more time. At the end of verse 23, James says something amazing something infinitely precious about the fruits of saving faith. We're told about Abraham in verse 23, and he was called the friend of God. All of us, all of us used to be enemies of God. We were friends with the world. And friendship with the world, James says, is enmity with God. But Jesus Christ rescued us. And if you share the faith of Abraham, you're not only a servant of Christ, you're not only alive in Christ, you're not only united to Christ, you're not only righteous in Christ, you're not only united to the Lord of glory, but wonder of wonders, you're also a friend of God. On the night he was betrayed by one of his friends, Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners, said these words, Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. What a friend we have in Jesus this morning. Do you want an unfailing friend? Such a friend is the Lord Jesus Christ. All is perishing, all is fading, all is passing away, but the Lord Jesus is a friend who never changes. There is no fickleness about Him. He loves His friends to the end. He never changes his feelings about his friends. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Lord Jesus never goes away from his friends. There's never a parting or a goodbye between him and his friends. The world is full of departures. Death separates the most united family. But thanks be to God, there is one who never leaves his friends. He promised to his friends, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord Jesus goes with his friends wherever they go. There is no possible separation between him and those he loves. There's no virus or sickness or place or uh, position on earth that can divide us from the greatest of friends, from the friend of our souls. When we pass through the fire of tribulation, he is with us. When we lie down in a bed of sickness, he is with us. When we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, When friends and relatives stand still 
and can go no further with us. Jesus goes with us. He never leaves our side. And when we wake up in glory, He is still with us. And when we rise with a new body on the last day, we will not be alone. He will be with us. He will say, These friends are mine. Let them go free. What a privilege it is to know the one who never fails. And there never, ever, ever has been or will ever be an unfailing friend like Jesus Christ. For greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. No longer does the Lord Jesus only consider us as his servants, but he has called us his friends. That is good news indeed. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You for making us friends through the blood and sacrifice of Your dearly beloved Son. Help us to trust Him more and more. Help our unbelief and help us to follow Him by faith today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.